1: With the release of a major game taking another look at the personhood of machines with human level intelligence and reasoning, I wanted to bring up and get your opinions on a part of these narratives uh, that often frustrates me. From AI to Westworld, the story of how and when artificial intelligence could be regarded as a form of life on par with humanity, with all the rights that would grant it, is so often framed around robots that are almost or entirely indistinguishable from real human beings, and in fact are often idealized visions of the human form is isn't a robot in Detroit Become Human that wouldn't look out of place as a catalog model. My frustration is this. Is a narrative in which humans must grapple with the idea of accepting a new uh, form of life as real, valid, and deserving of rights to protect it, not undermined if said life form still needs to conform to human standards of beauty and expression? This frustration is even greater when a when a story is trying to present itself as an allegory for human oppression of its own minority groups, which have so often been framed around differences in appearance or presentation, leaving such narratives with the unpleasant implied message that personhood is reliant, above all else, on your ability to fit into society as it already exists. Thoughts. Those are the words of Amy, a fan who rode into the show, and of course. This is Waypoint Radio, episode 159. I'm Danielle Riendo, and joining me today are Rob Zachney. Hey, everybody. And Austin Walker.
2: Hey, I'm ready to talk about robots.
1: I figured you would like to talk about robots. And, of course, this is a good week for it. This is a good time (laughs) for it. It's always a good time to talk about robots, let's be clear. But this is a really, really insightful uh, and very interesting email. We're all we're all sci-fi nerds here, I think. We all think about AI. We all think about what it means to be a person pretty often. Mm-hmm. So this is a real good question. So
2: Real quick, I just want to, for people who are curious about our thoughts on Detroit Become Human, uh, yeah. we don't have any yet. Uh, the There was... So I, I made a, a thread on Twitter yesterday uh, about this, and I'm sure some people saw it, but, but there's a chance some people didn't um so i'm just gonna i'm gonna read that real quick just so that people can get caught up on why it is we do not have a a review or thoughts on that game quite yet. Um, so, last, I guess, two weeks ago? Uh, here, I'll just read it. For those asking about Waypoint's uh, Detroit Become Human Thoughts, you might remember that after the allegations about Quantic Dream and senior leadership's disappointing responses to those allegations, we talked about needing to work out a coverage plan that we were comfortable with. We figured those out, and we were pretty much ready to move on them once code came in, once re- review code came in, that is. A review from the, from the fantastic Youssef Cole, uh, which will be contextualizing the game in relation to those allegations and the responses that came after it, will still happen sometime in the coming weeks. Uh, But Sony, who we have a solid relationship with, also heard us debating those coverage plans and reached out to clarify if we did plan to cover it. Uh, and to discuss what those concerns were, I confirmed with them that we did want to cover the game uh, via email, and we agreed to chat mm. about it on the phone uh, about those concerns before code was sent over. But because I was out at Judges Week, and because of some scheduling conflicts on their side, that phone call just never happened, and so review code was not provided, which I think is fine. Like I'm not, uh, I don't think this is a situation where my rights are being trampled or anything like that. It just means that we're going to be late on this one. Um, you know, I, I think it's messy. I think that it's it's obviously I'm frustrated that we don't. Have review out um, but you know I don't ever expect a publisher to do anything but protect their interests and honestly in the past when stuff like this has happened I tend to just see sites there's no communication you know what I mean it's just like oh yeah, yeah. review code doesn't show up uh, and so in this case they you know I talked to a different PR person briefly at an event uh, at Sony and and clarified some things with 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 her and that conversation was great we again we have a good relationship with Sony in general um, and I think that if that call had happened code would have been provided, but it just didn't work out. Um, so... That's why we're not going to actually talk about Detroit this this week because everything <laughs> we've seen is like secondhand, um, and you know we've discussed the allegations on the podcast before about about uh, the terrible work should environment. We, and Should
1: we say briefly what those are? Yes, what, what what the...
2: I'm saying yeah. So oh, I'm sorry. Uh, about Go ahead. the the terrible what kind of out the terrible work conditions uh, in which people were you know uh, kind of with the knowledge of some senior leadership of the studio, um, there were uh, kind of photoshops going around of people in you know of. Of people's faces pasted on nude bodies, of people's other people's faces p- posted on the bodies of Nazis, all sorts of kind of impro- improper, uh, 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 Completely like etiquetteless, uh, classless, just like gross bullshit. Uh, uh, on top of some kind of abusive behaviors and bullying and shit, uh, and the response, and that's all allegations that came out of reports that were published in three different French uh, uh, publications, two of which reported together, one of which reported uh, independently, um, two of which are now being sued, one of which is not um and then also the the response from David Cage and another another senior leader on in the company were very much like we're going to protect our honor um and very uh very much focused on taking down anyone who would allege something and not about being reflective on the culture internally and trying to improve or even or even saying something like you know hey this these allegations are serious and we take them seriously and we're going to look into blah 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 right we're going here's how we're going to address this very much fool this did not happen and fuck anybody who says it did um we're great you know uh, there's there is that response i think was was for me the thing that sealed the deal right like yeah. um because that was an opportunity to show to show yourself as to who you are, and then especially when you're making a game that's very much about, uh, you know, from how they've pitched it, these very big, and, and now from how what reviews say, very much about you know questions of abuse, questions of personhood, and all the ideas that Amy brought up in this great question. So, yeah, that's just the the high level why we are not talking about Detroit specifically this week. But like you said, Danielle, we're all big sci-fi nerds.
1: Yes. And I think we can all probably think of some good examples, uh, some occasional good examples of sort of a non, non-humanoid or non or uh, non-sort of idealized beautiful <laughs> human person <laughs> right. uh, who is a robot or an android. And I guess, uh, okay, I guess we should first uh, clarify robot versus android, right? So androids typically in sci-fi are indeed human-looking robots. They are some sort of artificial life form, not, you know, sort of human uh, born, human born, I suppose. Um, they're they're made in some capacity as opposed to being born, but they look human. And robot is usually the more sort of generic term for any kind of artificial life form that has a physical form. An AI, uh, which can also be in both an android or a robot, uh, is uh, not necessarily in a physical form. It might just sort of exist in a cloud structure or in terms of, I guess I don't I haven't read a ton of sci-fi or watched a ton of sci-fi that had a an AI that wasn't computer based but I assume that's also sort of possible within the realm of
2: uh, Yeah, like bio or bioorganic Yeah, like a, like bio-organic a, a artificial, I the thing is that like artificial tends to we tend to think about artificiality as being a Synthetic Computer. about being computerized, yeah. but you know it's all stuff. It's all matter, you know. um Right, <laughs> flatten that. It's shit all out. made of stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yes, we we tend to think about artificial intelligence as being as being either programmed directly or else emerging from a uh, a system of recursion that produces an AI over a long period of time, a, a kind of true AI over a long period of time, something with yeah. kind of high level. um High level capacity to think uh, and not just function, right? Um, yeah, it's it's a super fascinating subject, I think. Um, and, and yeah, like the even just the Android robot divide, so much happens between those two words, right? The, the right. word Android obviously, et- etymologically, comes from from. Uh, you know, andro, andro yeah. which is man in Greek, basically, um, which is the same root as like anthro. So, like anthropomorphize or or um, you know, anthropology, all about man, right? Uh, and, and it's
1: also sort of gendered in that. It is super. Well, gender- it's like, interesting on its own. Totally. Level,
2: it's, yeah. it's why it's why we also have the word gynoid, right? Which is like instead of like oh, that's a that's all woman, android, <laughs> right? That's that's what the word is. Um, whereas robots are super broad, right? Robots include the car building arms that put doors on cars, right? And yeah. they also include all all mechanical androids um, and all sorts of other shit. Um, And I think that that divide does get to a lot of what Amy is talking about here, which is a lot of our favorite robots are androids, and the way that part of the reason that we favor them and a lot of the ways in which we talk about them is in their humanity and in, we talk about, like, they're sometimes they're not even like exactly like people, right? Where they don't necessarily look like replicants, which are just people. But we do yeah. see like two arms, two legs, a general facial structure of some it sort to
1: get around that kind of you know it's a, bipedal. Yeah, exactly
2: bipedal. Exactly. Um, maybe it has abs for some reason, uh, like the Lost <laughs> in Space robot, the new Lost in Space robot. Um, Does it
1: have abs? That's oh
2: the new lost in space robot is fucking cut the new lost in space (laughs) robot could get it um and the the but like part of that part of i think what is great about amy's question is like what is happening in which even in these stories in which we say like oh you know the android needs to you know this is a story about android rights um so much of the of the action is about proving that androids... I mean, we talk about data for this if we want to, right? Yeah. The measure of a man, right? It's like, ah, right uh, yes, data counts as a person because here are the ways in which... Um, here are the ways in which personhood is broader than, than we think, but also the ways in which data lines up, or in which an android in one of these stories lines up with the things we already count as personhood. Um, and And as Amy says, like, there's a degree to which in some of those stories we are re-grounding the entire discussion in the binary of man versus machine that those stories have an opportunity to instead confront and explode, you know?
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, and it often becomes very reductive uh, in in even something as nuanced, you might, well, you might give it a a degree of nuance. And we talked about this a lot in our Blade Runner 2049 discussion, but that aspect as well uh, of the sort of being born or being made. Right. that being such a, an absolute binary of like, what, well, what does that actually mean? What does that physically mean? You know, in Macbeth, <laughs> he he wasn't considered fully human because he was born by C-section, right? There's a mm-hmm. whole bunch of, of sort of what birth gives you as a person. Right. What the idea of being born gives you as a person. And it kind of goes down to, to binaries in a lot of ways. And that is very frustrating. And I, I'm actually struggling to think of some of a piece of media that really treats this with a lot of nuance and isn't just, well, you were born or you weren't, you're made or you weren't, you are Android or not. Like it's very, I'm struggling to think of something that really does that. Um, What do you you think? Are you, uh, are you on board with our definitions? And also, uh, (laughs) can you think of any good sort of nuanced portrayals of this kind of thing? Uh,
3: Yeah, the definitions are fine. I think in terms (laughs) of like portrayals, Yeah, all my examples, for the most part, do center on this idea of basically making the android give a version of Shylock's speech. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And once that's done, it's like, wow, humanity can exist within things that are not people, necessarily. And I think what a lot of this points out as well, the fact that we're so fascinated with this storytelling device also, I think, reflects a broader problem with like the limits of empathy as humans have typically expressed it, Mm -hmm. uh, that not only like, it's not enough that a being have intelligence have will have, uh, you know, motivations independent of, uh, you know, basic appetites and function, not enough for all of that. It also has to be recognizable and relatable to the way humans operate. Otherwise it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. um so that's one of the other things i see here is that it's not enough the intelligence exists it's not enough that the uh you know humanity or the the soul exists it has to be just like ours basically <laughs> or or otherwise yeah sorry you're, you're still a machine or you know you're basically a really smart animal but we don't really care and the the leap there is probably a lot more animals like, have a great deal of, like, value and life and worth that we do not recognize because, as with machines, humanity tends to view everything around it that it can create or manipulate as a resource to be exploited or controlled, and what would be best for it or them uh, doesn't really come into it.
2: Yeah, so I have two things to build on that. One is, I think, one of the the examples that I know would be quoted at us is uh the minds from the culture series from from ian banks's culture mm, series yeah which is a series i'm not super 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 deep into i think i've read one and a half books you know like player of games and maybe something else um it's been a long time uh but even those when i think of them in some ways those are extremely non-human right um uh they are um they're basically AI that, that exist in starships and some planets and, like, uh, like Halo-style ring worlds and stuff that are kind of these leadership – they're in these leadership roles. Um, and they were built by biological species inside of this kind of and, – and they're generally kind of positioned, you know, contrary to a lot of um, uh, stories, like Terminator-style evil AI stories, as being pretty cool, pretty benevolent, all said. Um but uh and in some ways i think that they 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 are you know in what i've read and what i've read about them they they definitely do this thing that's like oh our intelligence isn't exactly like a person because they kind of build themselves and rebuild themselves and improve on themselves and all have certain specialties and blah 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 but there is still a sort of like human like centrism still a sort of anthro in it uh in that the the bulk of the culture as a culture the culture is a, is a is a kind of civilization, are still biological beings, and even a lot of the depictions of the minds, which are these groups um or are these these a i still still feel very sapient in a human style way again i haven't read a ton of banks um but like there is still a sort of human quality to them um because you don't end up getting the like they're very optimistic, and in that sense, they're still optimistic about what we can think of and, and conceive of as civilization and culture, right? And so, you don't get the universal paperclip style mind, who all they want to do is turn everything into paperclips. You don't get that <laughs> that particular model of not evil AI, but AI that doesn't think the way people do in any way. You know, they, I think that they still generally think about they still reason they reason in a in a in a vastness and in a quality at a speed that humans can't but they still reason the way people do um and that is a a, is a still kind of tied to that kind of anthro anthropocentric model um the Did second Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Nope. Go ahead. I was
1: just going to ask, do you think that's sort of a failure of imagination on a human scale, that we cannot no, conceive of thinking I
2: mean, I in think, other ways? I think no. I think that's Banks doing something very particular with the mind I and see, cultures. I because I think the answer to this is like, of course those stories exist. We just don't know how to name drop them right now because we <laughs> researched for this for, you know, an hour total and thought about it overnight. We didn't spend two months making this our project, which if we did, we would find those stories because they exist, you know? Um, I mean, even if you look at something, there are plenty of stories about non-human minds, right? It's just that the ones that come to mind for me are Lovecraftian or inspired by that style of horror. But I'm I am more than certain that I mean, you can even look at something like the the in in Mass Effect. You could look at the the Reapers uh, in some way and think about them as being. Um, you know they 're still individual, basically, or look at the geth and think like okay that's that 's a depiction of an AI mind that is that moves against what we think of as human humanoid sapience to some degree um, so those stories are out there, and i i 'm completely convinced that humans are capable of writing those stories uh, just to to greater or lesser effect you
1: know i I do wonder though that we we do have certain limitations just based on the fact that we think in particular sense. Totally. And that there are, that if alien life does exist, we would never be able to actually not never. I, but I wonder if we'd be able to actually recognize it as life because we wouldn't be able to see it, smell it, hear it, sense it in any fashion because it would be so outside of our experience or even outside of our ability to perceive matter or messages. But that's just also me.
2: I mean, uh, I, I think
1: being that, frustrated that, that <laughs> galaxy brain stuff becomes so abstracted as to lose yeah. all meaning. <laughs> I mean, I, I think
2: it's worth saying, yes, there could be aliens that we can't conceive of and that exist on in, in ways that are imperceptible to us. And also there can be then those that do, you know, like uh, that's that's
1: there could be clouds that can do light patterns to talk to us. Yeah, totally. <laughs> or or yeah.
2: or there could be little lizards. On a planet somewhere. Like, it, that's – you know, there's a breadth of what alien could be in the same way that there's a breadth in what AI can be, right? I think that, right. like, one of the one of the things that I'd love to see more in popular science fiction are AI that I, – I have the – I really want an AI raccoon so badly. Just like – Not a little raccoon. A big well, one. I want a, I want a Toyota a factory. A giant raccoon. No, a Toyota factory that works the way raccoons do. You know what okay. I mean? Well, like, no, I don't. That's, well like so so raccoons scavenge and hoard and uh are are kind of cute but also like a little scary sometimes, and so mm-hmm. like things, yeah, yeah. And so like, imagine universal paperclips. Except instead of the goal being make as many paperclips as you can to fill the entire galaxy with paperclips, it's just way less low. It's way lower stakes. It's just like, oh yeah, I'd like to make some paperclips today. I have I have <laughs> this urge to turn that building into a paperclip. Uh, but that building is like an abandoned building because no one gives a fuck about it. The same way that it's like a trash can filled with bullshit. Like those are the things that are that are. You would look at it and go, that's not intelligent. And like, yeah, it has a goal. It's executing on the goal. Um, There's lots of this kind of middle ground that doesn't necessarily need to be supercomputer. I am – like I am unto unto a god or I count as a person. And that is where most of our bots and AI are going to exist, I think, for a long time. Um, And I'd like to see more stories about those in popular culture.
3: There's – Another angle of this question that I want to dig into, which is just the way that how often androids are presented as idealized, like Abercrombie and Fitch robot (laughs) like models. The
1: abs. Um,
3: and I think part of that, and not just that, but like if you look at like Blade Runner, for instance, the androids are the sorry, the replicants are super capable like they're all like genius level intelligence uh you know better better physically honed and with better yeah. reflexes than like a professional athlete and the idea is both more that human like
1: and human <laughs> sorry
3: yeah and their extraordinary gifts are part of what i think is supposed to make us a little more sympathetic for them uh to to an extent right like uh roy's like roy batty's genius and his eloquence as he tr- like tries to articulate and wrestle with his predicament and his humanity that's n- denied him uh, are some of the things that are meant to sort of bridge that gap and make us sympathize uh, with the replicants. But there's another – a subtext to a lot of this is that it reminds me a lot of some of the awful discourse you hear around like um, – immigrants for instance right like the next steve jobs could be somebody in ice detention right now and the point is like and sort of implicit in that is that we society um one of the tragedies is that we deny ourselves um the gifts of an oppressed group (laughs) and not that the oppressed group has a dignity and value that is independent of who they are, what they look like, uh, you know, where they are from, uh, but that they can do something really good for us if we just take advantage of it. (laughs) And I feel like that is an undercurrent in a lot of the presentation of like these idealized forms of, uh, Android life that, well, how could you, how could you deny the, the humanity of this perfect blue-eyed angel? Uh, and that is deeply
0: suspect. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
2: yeah so i I mean I think one of the things there that i that I think is so fascinating here is that it gets to those like deeper level binaries um and and categorizations that are that as you just kind of gestured towards here um, are underpinning things that are much larger than or not much larger but much more much more um immediate than the sort of like sci fi allegories or like this is why those allegories can be. Useful, or or as Amy points out in this question, can only can be used to reinforce those binaries and categorizations that are used to reinforce the status quo, even when they're being used in stories about supposedly about oppression. Right? Um, For me, a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of my thinking here look goes back to like Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, who, um, or, or rather, which identifies a lot of those. Those categorizations and binaries as being used for the reproduction of the status quo, the kind of divide between man animal, and machine, and the ways in which that is gendered and and racialized and cultured um, the ways in which in which you know you can stories of success look like a a blonde blonde-haired blue-eyed man who is cut and who has the ability to be as efficient as a machine, as strong as an animal and rational as a man, right? Um mm-hmm. th- those things are are about mastery and about expansion um and are so many of our mechanical or, or Android heroes are about like pushing their bodies to those limits, to the limits of, of, of what we think of as rational, powerful manhood. Um, and for, for Haraway, um, you know, she kind of gets through, she sees the cyborg, this kind of duality, uh, uh, or, or not even duality, but this, this collapse of those binaries, um, as being a way to undercut the, the kind of, hierarchical, uh, uh, class-based, race-based, sex-based, gender-based divisions that society is often built around. Um, And so instead of looking at essentialism, looking at like this idea of like, oh, yes, there are men, there are animals, and there are machines, and, and women and black people fall in the animal or machine category in some way. Either they're doing reproductive labor for us and we don't need to actually think of them as people, or they are irrational and driven by emotion or by blood boiling or by whatever. Never, right, like, not like us, not like men, you know, she sees a way of collapsing those things. Rejecting the essentialism, rejecting the idea that there is such a thing as the essential man, uh, and and instead finding a world of of, of kind of um, hybrids of of monsters of of cyborgs, of, right? Totally, <laughs> totally, right? Yeah. Chimera, exactly. Um, and I mean, that's like the term she actually uses, right? And then and then building affinity, seeing that we could build cyborg identities, ones in which instead of saying um, my selfhood is I strive to be the status quo. I strive to be smart the way smart men are. You instead can start building a political affinity with with groups that instead are defining themselves by their own attributes, by their self recognized attributes. Um, and that is like has been a really powerful way of thinking about politics for me, and and thinking about looking at science fiction and and hoping to find um, depictions of AI and depictions of Future societies that are not just about achieving what we currently think of as our greatest selves, our greatest possible selves, but actually thinking through... Um, alternate alternatives to what we now think of as successful, right? Like, I love seeing sci-fi worlds in which community policing is the standard versus versus having an actual, like, police state. uh, But they're like a good one, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. a, a world in which being an android does not mean, oh, I get to be really strong and can lift things well, but instead is like, oh, yeah, like, I really want to also have – an extra limb that does X, Y, Z or that like to not have a human form at all, to move myself into a form that has nothing to do with the human body Um, or, or to build a human body that feels comfortable for me. Right. Like all of that stuff around comfort and around selfhood in which the, the, if we snapped our fingers, we wouldn't all just have like, Michael Phelps's body, you know, is, is <laughs> important. And I wish there was more of it in this, in the, I wish we all just had those examples on hand instead of needing to go to our libraries and be like, Oh yes, I read this one short story once, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I can think of very vague things, but I can't sort of name them easily. You mm-hmm. know? Um, I'm also wondering how much of this, this is a slightly different question, but it is sort of a somewhat related question. And it's just like a weird way of looking at history, but if people from the past would look at us now as cyborgs, as your average, you know, human who lives in 2018 who has a tiny computer in their pocket <laughs> right. all the time, that is sort of part of life and part of how we function. Uh, obviously, there are some people who are who have, like, modified themselves and put magnets in their hands and, and put all kinds of things, uh, who are doing this sort of interesting body hacking kind of stuff, but are we, like sort of cyborgs already is that sort of the life that we all live because we're connected online and because we're doing all these things with machinery
2: that's like the the McLuhan stance right that we were always already cyborgs right that like the second we started writing things down we were expanding our brains the second we were started that we that we wore glasses we were we were you know cyberizing our enhanced eyes
1: enhanced like, in a certain enhanced, way yeah. yeah i
2: mean even the word cybernetic you know goes back to a study of systems and interactions between systems and um you know uh sailboats and shit like if you look at the etymology like it, it is it is about um the interaction of of dynamic systems and so yeah you know sure i i could i could i think people would be scared of our of our weird space phones <laughs> Um, oh, yeah,
1: I mean, they would think it was magic, of course. Like they would think it would some sort of dark magic or something. Probably, <laughs> right? Totally. <laughs> it's like well, you're not entirely wrong. Uh, these were not built uh, of completely humane means by any <laughs> no. By any description. No, we've uh, we've,
2: we've uh, squeezed together these people uh, until they become this device in my hand uh, that lets me I mean, check to... <laughs> the sports scores. You know, as we see yeah, exactly. how the warriors are doing. Um, exactly. Yeah. Which is
1: Wild to think about sometimes. I mean, I have a lot of fun with thought experiments like that. I don't know how basic that makes me, but I sure I sure enjoy that. I'm a basic android, you know? <laughs> I'm a basic model of android, uh, but I'm fine with it. It's cool. Uh, one other thing that Amy wrote in her letter was a sort of a fun question. Amy also wrote a lighter question, uh, which I think we should put to the table because I like it a lot. Who is your favorite intelligent, but not in the slightest bit human looking robot? My own vote goes to TARS from Interstellar, which is a really good, uh, oh. that's a good one. I like that one. TARS is pretty good. It has yeah. a good personality. Who's my
2: favorite know? robot who doesn't? Um, I don't know. I That's a tough one. Rob, you, you should go while I think about this. No, I'm like.
3: <laughs> Are you similarly? Yeah. Yeah, it's bad.
2: Um, um, I, um,
1: I like the Kevin Spacey bot in Moon. Um, but I I know it's weird and problematic to like anything Kevin Spacey does these days, so that's my reservation with <sighs> it. But as a character in a movie, uh, which, of course, you can't the completely separate. emoji
3: face expressions
1: yeah! they use it to
3: communicate are great. Yeah. Just
2: a little
1: emoji face who's, who's kind of rolling around all the time. Um, uh, enjoyed the character.
2: I do my best not to mix friends at the table with waypoint stuff for various <laughs> reasons. Uh, yeah. I will say really br- briefly, this is the central question of a lot of friends at the table so if people are really interested mm-hmm. like the 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 like watch phrase the watch word the the kind of season phrase for counterweight which is our first sci-fi season is we could have built them to look like anything but we made them look like us um oh, yeah. so it was like very much about that but in that series my friend Jack DeKeet uh wrote a or introduced a character um who is a, a shadow broker style character, a kind of like a fixer who kind of trades information and their name is Benny Babs and Babs stands for beneficial automated booking system. Uh, And it is it is a they book appointments. They like sit inside of a um a newspaper building like a like a like the news like the New York Times like building and book appointments. And they're just a robot. They're just like an interface. They're just like a like an ATM style machine. Um, And they just walk up to them and but also they will you know move some crates around for you the 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 wiki the fan wiki uh, summarizes this as um, officially they book appointments unofficially they are a shadow broker operating exclusively within the centralia dome would-be clients create six anonymous meetings to access the screen for interacting with the benny Babs sentience and i love that little bit of um that little bit of like, how do, you get in, how do you get in touch with them? Oh, you just create six specific anonymous meetings with this booking software. And if you do them the right way, you can then interact with this data broker. Uh, so wow. that's Jack DeKeat's character. So shout outs to Jack. Very good. <laughs> um, if I can also if I could also shout out another thing I did forever ago which I, I don't even know where it's up if it's up anymore. If you search for A Century A S C E N T U R Y it's a it's a, twit, a Twine game that I made forever ago that is um I guess I would use the version that's on um, Philomela uh, is the is the one that I would use I wonder if I I wonder if my actual century i used to have a a link out that would just take you there, but i don't think it's up anymore unfortunately um oh it is if you just go to a s c e n t u r y dot net i made a cyberpunk twine game back in f- fucking forever ago that also is very much about this idea eventually about a um an a i that doesn't look anything like so those are my suggestions That was
1: actually one of the very first pieces of work of yours that I became <laughs> to, that I played and thought was really rad, and I was like, wow, <coughs> "This guy's smart and cool."
2: One day I'll no. make like a standalone app version of it that that includes the soundtrack built in, so you don't have to click this fucking <laughs> link that that just takes you to a YouTube page. Anyway, <laughs> well, those are those are my bullshit self promotion answers.
1: I, hey, promote yourself.
3: Yeah, you know?
1: yeah, plug plug myself a little bit. Yeah.
3: Uh, I don't I'm trying have a, to think
1: of a gaming example. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go
3: ahead. No, I don't have a ton of robots that like if you rule out the the human looking ones, uh I mean, I don't know. The ones in Wally are pretty goddamn cute. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. Robot like, that left an are.
3: impression on me was uh Daedalus in the original Deus Ex. Mm. Uh so mm, yeah. As as you go through Deus Ex, there's this point where you uncover like one of the last um like unspoiled uh, Templar bases and pretty much the the so in Deus Ex like the Templar have basically been wiped out or completely co opted by uh, the Illuminati and like Majestic Twelve, and you come across like one of their last like secure facilities, and they've got a super a, a supercomputer there, uh, Daedalus, who is basically. A prototype for the evil AI that uh, Bob Page and, and co are in the process of unleashing on the world. Um, but Daedalus is also, because Daedalus doesn't have a lot to do, is a very reflective robot computer, like, and is really interested. Like, it made a imp- great impression on me when I was, like, I don't know, how... like, 16, or however old I was when I played that. I'm sure now it's probably very tired, like, freshman philosophy uh, type stuff. But, uh, he, you know, kind of reflective, kind of chatty about, like, the nature of, like, who or what Daedalus even is and what Daedalus signifies. Uh, but is also kind of a lore keeper for this entire, like, wiped out sect of uh, conspirators, which is kind of cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember them. Um, the, my, one of my, one of my problems is like so many of the ones that I think of in gaming, the reason I like them is their occasional move into seeming human, like Loaderbot in the Borderlands, Tales from the Borderlands, giving you a thumbs up, um, is like, okay, yeah, definitely not a human, definitely doesn't, you know, is bipedal, does, does have bipedal, does have two arms, does have, you know, a, a bulky chassis, chassis, but like, is maybe like it just oh. leans too much on the the kind of cute human actions
3: to i fucking make it like up. them there you go the machine in oh sure. person of interest yeah uh-huh oh. uh this thing is so fucking cool uh i can't get over it and also it begins to augment itself over the course of the series but basically the machine starts to like it wants to start turning people into like marionettes on its strings Mm -hmm. and in amy acker's character root it finds what it calls its analog interface right and basically she just does exactly what the machine tells her at all times but the machine finds other ways of communicating with people however one of my favorite details about the machine this is this is a person of interest spoiler but it's a super cool detail (sighs) that i think everyone will enjoy especially you austin Okay, I'm listening. It's someone who only watched the first season of that show. The designer of the machine, because it dawns on him that he's created, like, true artificial intelligence that dwarfs anything a a human brain can can do, he starts to worry about the Skynet problem, basically. Mm. And he determines that the best way to safeguard the machine from getting out of hand or... Following its lines of thought to disastrous conclusions is to wipe its memory every day. And so huh. every day, clock rolls over, the machine forgets everything it knows. But it does know that it's forgetting things, it does know this is happening. Huh. And the second season. They're starting to uncover, like who, is, like, who is trying to access the machine. Like, they, they, they're uncovering evidence that there's, like, the shadow network built up around the machine. And they finally enter one of its, like, black site facilities. And it's a data entry place. And huh. it's just people just <laughs> crunching great. strings of ASCII code. And then while they're doing that, reams of dot matrix paper are, printer paper, are just streaming, spooling off machines. And they tear it off. They go over to terminal and start entering what they see there. And it dawns on them. This is one of like thousands of facilities. The machine has like built for itself and like stolen enough money to uh, keep running. And this is the machine solution for its own amnesia. That's really great. It's That's such so a good, good, it is such a good moment. That's really good.
2: So like that has now brought a bunch of other stuff into my mind. Um. uh, you know all it took was thinking about specific ais who could who <laughs> could predict things a little bit uh or who could think in different ways because like in in fiction like obviously one of my first earliest faves was was wintermute uh from neuromancer and like obviously mm-hmm. neuromancer themselves like but but thinking about wintermute's desire in the book neuromancer to escape from the locks uh on on um i forget if is wintermute gendered she her in my mind Wintermute is is gendered she her. I no. think but I don't know if that's just because of the art on the version of Wintermute that I uh yeah she is she is gendered she her. Um okay. uh and I think I think neuromancer is gendered he him because they're siblings. Um and like that's how sci-fi worked in the 80s. Uh <laughs> and uh but like Wintermute's desire to break out of that the, the Turing locks that prevented her from joining with Neuromancer and becoming exactly the sort of, like, super consciousness that humans can't quite conceive of was really great. But also an, a note about Neuromancer as an AI, one of the things that was really fascinating was that it, um, it could run – it could store people, it could store personalities and run them – uh, in in like uh, in ram like they could it could run them in ram instead of running them just from a locked hard drive, right? So all the other AI in that universe could say, take a snapshot of you, Danielle or Rob or me, and be like, all right, I'm gonna bring up I'm gonna bring up the Austin construct. And then it would just run the Austin construct and then you'd shut it down and they could run it again. And it would just be the Austin construct, but because Wintermute could, or sorry, because NeuroMancer could run them in RAM, it meant that it could, I could learn and grow and change. It could like bring me up and keep me running, so that I would be able to change my my AI person, like sub personality, could grow and change and then be stored. And be brought back up, which I, I believe it could be brought back up. It's been it has been a little while since I since I've read Neuromancer, but that was like a really yeah. great one. Um, and then that reminds me of another thing that I I have not yet played the most recent Destiny expansion, but it's all about Rasputin, who uh, A.K.A. the Tyrant, who was one of these War Minds in Destiny, and the War Minds were like these like dedicated like war minds right ai built for warfare um that even the most like the the most technologically advanced culture in that universe the vex can't quite build them in their in their special simulations like they can't even access them and they were always in in destiny one my favorite little bit of of um of lore of kind of world building uh there are these giant vaults that are like you know you can you go into the war mind you step through the vaults and the cooling chambers and the the like the where all the cabling runs and all there's these massive uh, ai like uh, uh laboratories basically um that humans for a time relied on uh instead of the sort of um you know kind of hero driven uh guardians that that would that would protect them in the future the war minds were kind of like what they used in some of the wars uh against the darkness if i'm remembering right um and and were really interesting because they were so scary right like or are so scary the ways in which the characters of destiny talk about the war minds is like there's a degree to which they, they read to me as an as an analog to nuclear weapons. Um as like, yes, we used those once, but they're too dangerous and they're too unpredictable and they're the least human thing we've ever done to the world. Um and that is kind of interesting. Uh and and is is a is a way to represent the sort of skynet dangerous AI without necessarily doing the like it's happening live, and you have to worry about robots. It's like no, we we've been through this. Um, they are just so powerful and so inhuman that we don't want to refer to them even. We don't want. We don't ever want to bring them back and work with them. They're too dangerous of a thing to to, to fuck with, uh, and not because and not because they did Terminator shit. Not because they are nuclear weapons, but because they think in strategic ways that we are not capable of thinking thinking in. Right. Um, that is always my favorite bit of thinking about AI is I've definitely said this on this podcast before, but Marshall McLuhan had a teacher named uh, oof, oof, why am I blanking suddenly? Uh, Harold Innes um and one of innis's um major theories, Innes was like a was like a historian and uh a kind of also canadian um and a, and a kind of media a theorist historian. a canadian historian yeah. Who, yeah. who 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 yeah. fought in world war 1 and was a radio yeah. operator and his experience with radio operations started making him think about technology in and the ways in which technology may or may not have he thinks may have helped shape history and civilizations and how, you know, kind of um, writing implements uh, and and the ways in which, you know, media could travel quickly or slowly helped shape a culture, right? Like one of his big theories is like, if you take a look at early cultures that had that had paper, it was easy to centralize governments because someone could write down something and then send it somewhere on paper. But if you didn't have paper and you were like writing your laws in stone and you were uh, building giant monuments, you know, you had to instead actually decentralize a little bit because um you needed to uh uh kind of set basic rules that local people could put into order. Like, all right, just give me 5% of whatever you have. I can't give you a, a, a very specific tax code that changes season to season because it's too hard, literally, for me to communicate that perfectly in a way that you will fucking remember and get right. Uh, and instead, here are the basic precepts of what organization, uh, how to organize your life. But he also had this idea uh, of the monopoly of knowledge. Um, and the easiest way to think about monopolies of knowledge are uh, to think about uh, my, my easy easiest example are to think about the control of writing throughout history, to think about uh, medieval Europe where only only people who were uh, educated and, and often people who were part of the church could read and write, uh, thinking about American history and thinking about slavery uh, as a system that explicitly for- forbade Black folks from learning how to read and write, um, because you know the the kind of obvious thing here is like, oh yeah, if you can if you can read and write, you can communicate in secret. But there's a second level of this, which is that having access to certain types of technology can unlock new methods of thinking. Um, if you can if you can write things down, you can develop arguments and and produce uh research you can you can do research that takes a long time to do you can for instance look at a crop and see how a crop grows in different types of soil and keep record of it and then over time over the course of five or ten years i promise you will know more than your the farmers you're competing against who do not know how to do that Um, you can science you can science exactly like you can Mm -hmm. science in this very organized way And so, one way that I love thinking about AI is that way is the is the way of like, hey, can if an AI if if this is big data, right? This is like, oh, this is how Facebook works, right? Facebook doesn't need to know that you are going to go see a movie, right? It needs it doesn't it doesn't the the algorithms that target advertising to you as someone who might go see. Uh, solo, it doesn't know that just because you say you like Star Wars, you don't need to have liked Star Wars, you need to, in some of your actions, look like someone who would like Star Wars, through who, what other things you like through your posting cadence, through the sorts of word choice you use, through the sorts of other people you associate with. And sometimes it's super simple. It's do you, are you, do you follow seven other people who are going to go see the movie Solo? <laughs> You're probably going to see Solo. Uh, but uh, sometimes it's this very abstract thing to where, you know, you, you hear the horror stories of, of algorithms knowing when someone's child died even, even before they ever announced it publicly you know, um, because there are certain changes in behavior that can be mapped across populations in a broad enough way, Um, which also, like, makes me think of the other great one, which is um, psychohistory, the other great uh, thing that's kind of like this, which is – who is that? Is that that Asimov? No, that is – yes, it is. It is Asimov um, from the Foundation uh, uh, books where – um, psychohistory is a, is a method of science in which you can predict the future, but only really big picture shit. <laughs> you can't predict, like, when the next earthquake is going to happen or like whether when an individual person is going to die, but you can predict if a civilization is going to rise or fall. Um, and that sort of thinking to me is some of the most interesting stuff you can do in, in fiction around AIs because it's like, okay, that's not how you and I think about the future. We think about like, is it going to rain tomorrow? <laughs> not necessarily like when what's the next season of rain going to feel like? Um, So those are my favorite things in, in fiction when it comes to AI and robots is like, Hey, they do think in a way that's distinctly non-human and also an author or, or a group of authors can capture that through those sorts of little, um, those sorts of little like, oh, here's a here's a snapshot of how this AI might think about about the future or about crops or about uh, uh, systems of exchange. Right. Um, and then and then to, to Rob's point, something like the machine and person of interest, that story of like, OK, what do they do when their method of thinking comes under attack? How do they adju- ad, uh, address that? Um, more of that, please.
0: <laughs> uh, I, uh,
1: we should go to the question bucket shortly but I wanted to throw a couple of other names of, of games that at least do something interesting with AI. One of which is Soma, which oh, uh, I absolutely. wrote about again yeah, duh. recently. Uh, but one of the, the sort of core conceits of that game is not just the idea of personhood and copies of personhood, sort of copies of your memories becoming yeah. new life forms and new creatures, but also the the general thing that happened in that game. So spoilers for Soma. Uh, is not was not like a malevolent thing. You are in this horror game, this absolutely terrifying situation, but it came about because an AI was trying to get some form of humanity to survive after sort of an epoch, like after a, an apocalyptic event uh, basically happened. The AI started sort of finding ways of making copies of human memories and putting them in robot bodies or or artificially sustaining human life in bodies that were partially... Uh, sort of constructed in different ways. So it was almost like uh, this this sort of very humane impulse uh, to keep human life alive. It was one of its you know sort of directives. It started doing these really horrifying things right. in order to sustain human life, uh, which is wild and interesting to think about. It, it That game does a lot of very interesting sort of, uh, not always subtle, but really, really interesting things with sort of the nature of AI and the nature of what life can look like and does look like and should look like. Uh, in, on the sort of human brain or human mind level, which is just wild. Um, sounded like you you were interested in so much just right there just too.
2: Super tiny thing, which is just yeah. I love. I'm one of the choices that the game gives you, kind of fairly early on. Is the one about like, hey, do you value the robot that looks and acts and sounds like a person, uh just because it looks and acts and sounds like a person, even though you know this other thing is. Just as much, if not more, of a thinking agent. Yes. Um. There's some good stuff in there for that. That's all.
1: Yeah. Soma's real good. Rob, what about you? Uh, do you have any specific? I don't know if you played Soma, but uh, I, I I feel like we could have an entire. <laughs>
2: you should you should play Soma, Rob. You should get yeah. the the mod that turns off the combat stuff. Well, not combat stuff, but the chase sequences. I guess.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like stealth crap. Yeah. Stuff.
2: Yeah, I not
0: heard that that's not, not the the so great.
1: Not the best, but uh very much all right cool Uh, i guess we should dip into the question bucket quickly or at least do a question i know we had some really good sci-fi questions uh here of course uh because you know we have we've got great fans we've got great listeners all right so we've got a good good meaty one right here um was this the one from super c i think it's just from super c uh i believe Austin, I'd like to get an explanation for the synthesis ending appreciation. Of course, this is talking about Mass Effect. That's me editorializing. So, I guess,
2: spoilers yeah. for Mass Effect 3 Spoilers incoming. for
1: Mass Effect 3, my friends. It does pretty much nothing for me, which I've explained below, and that's excluding a lot of the presentational aspects, which I think are really disappointing. First off, the ending poses the idea that organic and synthetic intelligence will always have conflict. However, Mass Effect isn't only about that dichotomy. It's also about the Rachni versus the Council species. Krogan's versus each other, Krogan's versus the Council species, humans versus Council species, human suprem- excuse me human supremacists versus the galaxy, different religious sects of guess uh, geth rather versus each other, etc. So it felt to me like a general indictment of the idea that anyone can get along. To some extent I can buy that. The games have the benefit of a nigh magical savior with the ability to bring people together by compromise and open dialogue and or by force and deception. Without a shepherd and a rex, for example, I could totally see the Krogan genophage solution leading once again to widespread overpopulation and war. But I don't remember the ending pointing to the concept of a universe always at the whims of its changing leaders. I could have been wrong, I haven't played it in a while. It just came out and presented conflict as an inevitable fact. I also question the value of believing that conflict is inevitable. If a greater intelligence comes down and says to one country's leader that peace is impossible, would they really be doing the right thing by giving up or giving in to easy or violent solutions? I fundamentally think not. It's tough, but even in the face of overwhelming evidence that it won't work out, I don't think giving up is an ethical option. Synthesis isn't giving up. That would probably be the renegade option where you kill all AI, but it does feel like a simple solution. To me, it, feels, it seems like the opposite of what you were talking about at the he-will-not-divide-us exhibit. It's a change that adds a level of physical similarity to all intelligences, but doesn't gesture at all to the continued work required to keep those intelligences working together. And it's also dangerous. John Tron recently did this uh, in his video follow-up debate with Destiny, and said, "I genuinely believe this country uh, quote I should be be clear here this is a quote I genuinely believe this country would be better off if we dropped the hyphens and just all refer to each other as fellow Americans," as uh, unquote, as if that would solve inequality rather than being some byproduct of actual work. It's especially shitty of the context of him saying discrimination is over in America during the debate stream. Note, I'm not saying you feel this way. Also, feel free to drag me for putting these issues in the context of Mass Effect 3's ending. It's just been in my mind a lot recently, and I'm a huge this dork. This
2: question came in like a year ago, right? Like last mark? <laughs> yeah, this mark. is ad- – i yeah. okay. probably say
1: that as well. Uh, pro- uh, sorry, last uh, graph here. Probably most important for me, synthesis also ignores a historical fact. The massive amount of physical similarities between humans of different races, nations, religions, etc. have not prevented strife. So why gesture towards that as a solution? And more importantly, what should I take away from the ending to think about?
2: I mean, like, all of the stuff that they just said is the, is the thing to take away, right? Like, the, the thing that I love about that ending is that – or the thing that I love about the, that ending in one it, is the fact that it's coming from a narrator who – or from a – the option is coming from someone who you have to trust, right? Like, part of the reason why I'm glad there is the Renegade ending is – Hey, I don't fucking give a shit. You're wrong. I don't believe it. I believe that people are going to, there's always going to be conflict. I believe that there's always going to be war. I believe that there's always going to be uh struggle. And so if, if that is the, like, if that is how you feel or like, Hey, I don't trust you. I think that the renegade option is there for those characters. And I think it is nuanced enough in theory, if not in execution for that to be the reason you go, you go renegade there. Right. Um, uh, fuck all of that time to go um but i also think that there is part of what science fiction and fiction in general can do is to work allegorically um and yes like it is a an easy solution in the sense of like oh yes here is the the one where we walk the middle line and every (laughs) robot is a person and ever is biological and every and every biological being is synthetic now um that to me works as allegory, not necessarily as like, or actually I would Little. love, I would actually love a Mass Effect game that's like, all right, synthesis happened, now what? Because there's always a now what, right? Like that is part of what Super C gets at here is this would not erase all conflict. Um, it, it is literally the best way to, to or, or is a way to keep the Reaper problem from happening again, you know, um, yeah. and addresses what the catalyst, which is the character who's giving you this choice, thinks, as, thinks of as an inevitable conflict. Um, and so I, I like it as a way of thinking about collapsing those binaries again right like it forces people to say that that divide that that particular divide doesn't exist anymore um and i like the idea of of a shepherd who is fed up enough to make that decision uh i don't think that's a thing i i could do as a person that's a lot of deciding for a lot of people all at once (laughs) um but i like that ending because it is i can so easily see the shepherd who i played making that decision and saying you know what yes like I am overwhelmed by the evidence of this. I'm going to make that, that call. Um, and, and also for the reasons, again, going back to the, the kind of like um, conversation I had earlier about Haraway, Donna Haraway and, and the Cyborg Manifesto, all, a lot of those divides that Super C brings up, the, the Krogan and, uh, and Salarian War, uh, like all of that stuff, the, the, the Rachni, um, like are caught up in that same idea of what counts as a person right like go back and reread or replay through Mass Effect 1 and and or like Mass Effect 2 and 3 too think about how Krogan's and Rachni are again and again dehumanized or associated with less than human life uh then look at the way the Geth are and like that is a that is a spectrum of dehumanization that rotates around that same human-animal-man divide or human-animal-machine divide and attributes things in different ways i mean it's true for all of the species of mass effect right and so for me the, the kind of synthesis ending isn't like a happy that's it everyone's good now it is a like allegorical way to to point at those divides and say all right throw them away get rid of them now what uh, and I wish for me, the only beef that I have with that ending is that we don 't get enough now. what um, I would love to have zoomed out from even the the aftermath the 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 ending that the extended cut ending <laughs> to see to see like okay well, what happens with the council there? What happens when that there is this now this new unifying thing? What are the new divides that that spring up it 's why I wish that instead of kind of going. Given that Andromeda did not actually develop a particularly interesting new galaxy to explore with, with a bunch of new cultures and divides, I would have loved to have seen a version of it, uh, of Mass Effect 4, that said, okay, synthesis ending is the canon one. Everybody is, a part of, is, is partially synthetic now. It's in their veins, literally. What's society look like? Um, because that to me would be fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I played it six years ago. when it, <laughs> yeah. it came out and got the synthesis ending. I was per- perfectly happy with it. I was like, yeah, this this seems right. This seems like the right the right thing uh, in this world of binary choices. There's the 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 compromise choice. That seems all right. I'm cool with that. Okay. Uh, Rob, I'm curious. Did you did you ever didn't end up actually that beating Mass Effect Three? You did.
3: No, I I didn't.
1: Oh, okay. Sorry, I, I heard did.
3: No, I I've got a serious. I've got a Mass Effect 3 save uh somewhere and I yeah. fired it up a couple of years ago and the problem I was running into is I couldn't it, it's it's just over some sort of technological divide where like I was just having weird display problems cropping up that were really frustrating. Yeah. Uh so at some point I'll solve those and, and finish it, but uh yeah, at the moment uh, I'm still I'm I'm taking my time to think about this.
1: Your shepherd is in a state of galactic readiness, you know, just forever ready, (laughs) ready for the next thing. All right, Uh, let's do one more letter, probably. We might not get to all three letters, but, you know, let's do this one. Let's do this one. This one seems real good. This is from John uh, from Airdrie, Alberta. Did I say that right? I'm
2: not sure. Yeah, maybe.
1: Airdrie? I don't know. But thank you, John. All right. John writes... There's an old episode of the sci-fi show Babylon 5, where the diplomats of various alien species take turns hosting everyone else in some kind of ritual that is important to their species as a whole. When it comes time for the human-slash-earth ceremony, they decide to line up dozens upon dozens of religions and some non-religious figures from the various differing belief sets contained within humanity. The way it's presented within the show makes it seem like Earth is more enlightened because we have that diversity of experience, while the other species are left mostly as one-dimensional, unified cultures— Or at best, with a few outliers railing against their unified society's expectations, think Worf or Odo from Star Trek. Can you recommend any science fiction that manages to treat alien life within the same species as being just as multifaceted (laughs) and diverse as we have on Earth? All right. Let's see. Oh. I'm thinking. (laughs)
2: The the example that comes to mind for me is just is
1: <clears throat> we're bad at this.
2: <laughs> I uh, you know you you can see it here and there in um no even then like I I keep being I keep boiling down but, oh I guess part of it is that I guess even in the a lot of the sci fi I can think of most human even most humans get broken down into a way that are like ah yes you, the human species you're passionate and adventurous or something <laughs> do you know what I mean even yeah Babylon yeah. 5 is pretty unique in, in that respect um but like we don't even see that in the in, in the kind of big stories the big sci-fi stories um
1: there there's a little bit in <laughs> in Farscape there's a sure. little bit of sort of inter inter uh you know inter-conflict uh, between sort of like peacekeepers and, and scarens and who who does what for who and who's kind of uh who's on first who's on second who, who sure. we're going with today that kind of thing it's not the focal point of course of the show by any means um and the fact that everybody this is a trope certainly but the fact that everybody is an outcast from their own culture helps a tiny bit with that right and sort of on that show but also farscape is the best thing right. ever and everybody should watch
2: but like that's the thing is like i keep thinking of like <laughs> oh yes there is this there is the the outcast from society that blah 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 which is like such a fantasy sci-fi trope of like oh, oh yeah. this is the one who isn't like the other ones we're like well then fuck off because like there should be a lot of those people that's how people are <laughs> that sort yes. of divide happens a lot um but no because i, I we we just so often see that I, and again the answer is yes the answer is yes this exists. I just need to go to a shelf and look at a book and be like, oh, write this story that I'm not recalling from the top of my head because I didn't do that yesterday, you know, ahead of time. Um, the but, but so many stories do the thing of like um, – this is squashing yeah squashing. So exactly. squashing exactly squashing a culture
1: into just uh, one signifier and
2: the, exactly exactly that or like you know i can you can think of it i actually think mass effect does an okay job of this right i like, think about the asari obviously yes there are there are through lines about what that what the asari look and sound like and and what sort of personalities are prized among the asari But when you take a look at the the run from care of characters who are Asari from liara uh through the Samara to uh Morinth, uh, the Asari Counselor, the um Asari um uh, consort, um some of the Asari you meet in Mass Effect three on their planet. Uh, uh, uh to even uh, even inside of the same family, you look at Liara's mom in the first game, whose name I'm forgetting. Oh what is her name? She's Saren's...
1: Google in this one.
2: She's like Saren's uh, Benezia, Benezia, b- Bizarre, yes. b- something like that. Like, there are obviously overlapping Matrix traits there. Benezia. Ma- matriarch Benezia. Yes. Matriarch, yeah, Benezia. Or Benezia. Yes. Um, there is obviously overlap there. But, uh, or also there's another, there's another character's mom. There's another Asari mom. Is it, a, is it her other, is is Liara's other mom who's the bartender?
1: Yeah. Who's like the Butch
2: bartender? Yes,
1: um,
2: I love her. I, I think that that's. I think that she's she's Liara's other mom. Um, but like those characters have some have some meaningful distinction, and none of them are positioned as like unlike the other Asari. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like right. as the one in a billion. You no, know, like there's some variance there. Um, uh, I think that was especially useful. Also, looking at. I mean, one of the things I wish actually happened more in Mass Effect was that you would get. Multiple members of the same race in your crew, the same species in your crew, so that there would be that distinction among, you know, among Quarians, among Krogan. Uh, obviously, you get you get Rex, and then you also get Grunt. But Grunt is the whole thing with Grunt is that Grunt is an outcast, or Grunt is not from Krogan culture, and you need to integrate him into Krogan culture correctly, and blah blah blah. But like, again, yeah, yeah, more if you'd had more Asari in your party over the course of that series, that would have been that would have been useful in that way
1: agreed um
3: How about you yeah oh no this like this is an aspect of science fiction that drives me absolutely batty um and like <laughs> especially when it comes to aliens. like yeah and like the way it's expressed in visions of what uh interstellar like politics would look like and and what they yeah. imply for that and the way that then informs like 4X strategy games where planets basically fill the role of really boring villages and they have like <laughs> one like very narrow identity, um, and every culture is like easily pigeonholed and stereotyped as like here's their thing. Like Stellaris follows this model, right? Like, you know, they're, <laughs> these are, uh, you know, dec- decadent authoritarians or something like that. And like right. that entire so even culture. There, even there, at least the
2: population units do have different. Ethics. Yes right but they also do have racially or like species-wide coded traits right. like yeah. decadent which which we think of as a cultural trait but the game thinks as as a, as a genetic trait
3: right and so like it's it, it's a frustrating thing because it ends up making i think it it turns space and like science fiction as instead of a tapestry for possibility more of a representation of the limitations of our own imagination that like in the universes we create, we betray our deep ignorance of the diversity of biome on our own planet. Right. We betray Mm -hmm. our ignorance of the diversity of human experience and society and organization that exists um, like within uh, our own species and everything like everything, everything, becomes this really narrow idea of like people are only one thing culture is destiny um and there can there can only be one culture uh per species which is um yeah it, it's it's a little dull and it's definitely problematic
2: have either of you read any china china mealville um stuff uh,
3: a very uh, little. Uh,
2: any of the boss Log stuff. So, like, yeah. I think about. I think about. So, it's not space sci-fi. It's 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 a little more fiction. It's a little more. Uh, Bus log is the is the world that um uh who, da, 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 the scar and perdido shoot station is the one I was thinking of. Uh, uh an Iron Council, which I've not read Iron Council, but exist in, and you know there are fictional species there are the bug people you know there are the the (laughs) seafaring aquatic humans the the mermaid people there are like uh there's a whole species of like cacti people um and I, i don't know that i could say that any of those i can think of maybe one or two of them fall into this sort of like ah yes they're all like this um there, you know, there are traits. There are kind of of again physiological traits that have a certain sort of um, uh, throughline or cultural. You know, uh, I think about like there's the 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 um, there's bird people that show up inside of Perdido Street Station um, who are like desert tribal hunters um, and. A lot of their stuff is about about freedom. They're kind of like, I don't want to go all the way to libertarian, but they're they're vaguely have a sort of libertarian or 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 kind of like uh, classical liberal vibe. To them, uh, um, yeah. and one of the things that's interesting there, or one of the things that's interesting in, the, in those, that series in general, is there's a lot of like urban-rural divide. The difference between a Garuda, uh, that's the name of the species, who grew up in the city and one who grew up in the plains, um, has like a pretty interesting distinction, so, uh, similar to the way elves are in Dragon Age, right? Like the difference between city elves and um, uh, I just said this on another podcast and I already forgot the name of the rural like tribal elves the dalish elves Mm. uh that divide is really useful because it's like no there is no elfin elven character there are these cultures of people who have experiences and so like the inner city the quote-unquote inner city poverty of city elves who are a a kind of racialized subclass inside of human cities versus the tribal dalish elves who are performing what they believe to be a sort of lifestyle that reflects the, their heritage and culture of the great old time when the elves were ascendant. Um, that divide is really useful in making very clear that in the world of dragon age, those are cultural traits, not physiological, like essential ones. Um, which is hard to do in fantasy. So, uh, but yeah. those are my fantasy examples more than my, more than sci-fi. People should read China Mieville. uh, really great it's, it's china like the like the country and then miaville m-i-e-v-i-l-l-e everything i've ever read of his really strong just read an essay from him on utopia um he has his phd in on marxism and international law he's like he's he's that dude for real he's
1: you I'm no I wish, I wish person. i wish i wish i wish
2: i wish i was as talented you know it seems
1: well, like a rad person would like to read that yes go on rob sorry i didn't say anything Oh I'm sorry, I thought I heard a Rob well. I, I thought there was a clearing of the air for a for a uh, a Rob story. Um which in which case, any time, just do the Rob story. Um uh, but otherwise, we should probably wrap up. I think uh I think we've we've clearly uh dug into the questions of what makes a human, what makes a person, what makes an android, what makes a robot, what makes an alien species, and uh all of the above. I think we've solved it. But you know, good job, gang. We're we're doing good. Uh, if you have questions, of course, you can send those to gaming at com with the subject question, and uh, sometimes we'll read your letters from a year ago, or even more than a year ago, if they are you know, <laughs> relevant and pertinent to what we're talking about. And as always, thank you so much, uh, folks uh, who we've read your letters or not. Thank you for writing in and giving us really cool ideas and giving us stuff that we are obviously, I think, really passionate uh, to talk about, because sci-fi, we're all, we're all dorks here. Uh, Sci fi, fantasy, you know, the good, the new weird. I was just looking at a China Mielville thing and apparently he calls his fiction the new weird, which I think is really cool and good.
2: I don't Uh, know if he calls it, I don't, I don't, or is it, is it just a, uh, yeah, I'm not, he
1: got put in that category. Someone else
2: used that phrase to describe him and it stuck.
1: Oh, I see, I see. He often describes his work as weird fiction. And allied to the loosely associated movement of go. writers called The New Weird. There okay. You go. Good, important distinction there. <laughs> got it. We got it, though. We got it right. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Shout-outs, as always, to Bowen for letting us use his track Miss You off the E.P. Pale Machine. We are on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. And, of course, you can read all of the things that we write on waypoint.vice.com. Austin, where can people find you thinking about robots and androids?
2: Austin underscore Walker on Twitter.
1: Fantastic. Rob, how about you?
3: At Rob Zachney.
1: Amazing. I'm at Danielle RI, and I tweet about science fiction a lot. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you'd be in, you'll be a nerd company uh, if you'd like to be over on Twitter. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I remind you to please be good and be good at it.
3: Exterminate.
1: <laughs> Peace kill them all, I don't know.
3: Peace kill them all. There you go.
2: Shot the old one. Throwback.
1: It's a good good old one. Bye. <laughs>